Now, as I said, we're celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany. And I'm confident that everyone here has a profound and expansive understanding of this feast and its significance. I mean, that's why you're here. And you really enjoy singing We Three Kings and Go Tell It on the Mountain. Thank you for that. Wonderful song. The carol We Three Kings was written in the 19th century by an Episcopal priest. It's considered to be the first widely popular Christmas carol written in America. Now those two bits of information are freebies. If you don't get anything else out of my sermon, you now have a leg up on everyone else around you when that random Jeopardy clue appears. But maybe there are a few of you here who aren't exactly sure what the Feast of the Epiphany is all about. I asked, I asked a few of the guys back in the vesting room what they thought Epiphany was about, and uh, we'll just leave it at that. We don't want to say any more. But they confirmed uh, my suspicions that perhaps a, a, bit of under, a bit of context is needed so that we really know what we're doing here tonight beyond saying, well, this is what we always do on January 6th. And tonight's your lucky night. It is Friday night. I got a lot of sleep last night. I've got a lot of energy. I've done a lot of reading. I've got no less than 45 minutes of historical and theological and liturgical insights for you. So buckle up. You're going to be on the edge of your seat. I assure you. Well, I don't have 45 minutes. I could, but I don't. But I do want to take a few moments to give some historical and liturgical context. And then I do want to consider how Epiphany applies to us in 2023. So on that note, let's take a closer look. First and foremost, what is the Feast of the Epiphany? Well, it's the day on the church calendar that we observe Christ being manifested or appearing to the Gentiles, non-Jews, most of us here gathered tonight. The Greek word epiphania means appearing. It's used a handful of times in the New Testament in relation to Jesus. St. Paul used the term when he wrote, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, his epiphany. Epiphany is one of the earliest feast days on the church's calendar, along with Easter and Pentecost. The Church Father Clement of Alexandria mentions its observance as early as the late 2nd century, which means it was celebrated over 100 years earlier than the Feast of the Nativity, also known as Christmas. Epiphany begins on January 6th, and it goes until Ash Wednesday, which means that it can last anywhere between four and nine weeks, depending on the date of Easter. And if you're asking the question now, Epiphany this year is seven weeks long. Epiphany began in the Eastern Church on January 6th, and originally the feast day commemorated the baptism of Jesus, and it still does today in the Eastern Church. Two other events from the life of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, and also the changing of water into wine at a wedding in Cana, were also commemorated. In the West, we give the priority to the visit of the Magi. Epiphany always commemorates the baptism, or I'm sorry, the first Sunday of Epiphany always commemorates the baptism of our Lord. And in year C, 
On the second Sunday of Epiphany, the gospel reading is always the miracle of water into wine. So in the West, even though we give the priority to the visit of the Magi, liturgically, we still link those three events. And also, if you're wondering, we're in year A, so you have two more years to go before you'll hear that gospel reading. Now, even though there are slight differences among East and West in what events are given priority, the intention is the same, to highlight the divinity of Jesus. So that's Epiphany in a nutshell. Now, of course, there are a lot more things that can be said, but we don't want to get into the weeds of that. If you do, come see me. I'll give you the resources. You can put yourself to sleep reading uh, everything that I've been reading over the past few weeks gearing up for this. But for the rest of my time tonight, I want to take a closer look at the visit of the Magi and consider what it might mean for us. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know how you read this account in Matthew 2, but it's always raised questions for me. I find the Magi to be quite enigmatic. I've never known what to make of them. And I think several questions arise quickly when we take a closer look at that account. Who are they? Are they magi, wise men, or kings? What's the difference? Where did they come from? Why don't we know their names? Were there really three of them? What star were they following? What did they believe about Jesus? What did Joseph and Mary do with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What kind of gifts are those for a baby? Maybe you've thought about some of these questions or others over the years as well. Maybe it's just me. Now, some of these questions can't be answered this side of eternity, but others can be explored, and I think they can help us understand this passage better. The text, according to the ESV, the English Standard Version, calls them wise men. The term is magi, the plural form of magus. It's used one other time in the New Testament in Acts 13 to describe a Jewish false prophet and magician. Beyond its meaning as magician, the term also refers to a Persian or Babylonian wise man and priest who was an expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and various other occult practices. And I think that's what it means in our passage. The wise men were priests, astrologers, and holy men from Persia or Babylon. To state the obvious, they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. This is not necessarily the best look for the first people in Matthew's account to recognize Jesus as the king of the Jews. The Magi would have been viewed with suspicion upon their arrival to Jerusalem. So what is that all about? Well, Matthew is setting us up for the rest of his gospel. If you recall his telling of the crucifixion in chapter 27, it's another Gentile that declares Jesus to be the Son of God. And in chapter 28, Jesus tells his apostles to make disciples of all nations, more Gentiles, even though Matthew is writing to a Hebrew audience, he's bookended his account with the wrong people understanding who Jesus truly is. But let's get back to the Magi, those pagan priests and astrologers. 
Their identification as kings could be understood as fulfilling our reading from Isaiah 60 and Psalm 72. Both passages are seen to be referring to the Messiah, and both mention the kings of other nations coming to offer themselves and gifts to the Messiah. The passage in Isaiah specifically mentions gifts of gold and frankincense. However, Matthew's account gives no indication that they are kings, just as there is no indication that there were only three of them. That stems from the number of gifts offered to Jesus. Three gifts given means three gift givers. But again, a close reading of the text does not necessarily support that. And what about their names? Do we know them? Well, the church gave them names 500 years after their visit to Jesus. They're Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. And they were venerated as saints in the Middle Ages. Do with that what you will. And what star were they following? How did they know it was meant for Jesus? Was it like this big star with a J on it? Like, what was it? And this is not a simple answer. Nothing easy about this. But I think there are a couple of suggestions worth noting. And I lean heavily on uh, biblical scholar R.T. France and his commentary on Matthew for this. The first thought is that it was a comet. Comets have long been held to herald the arrival of important figures on the world stage, and a comet visible in the western sky might well explain the journey of the Magi. But no astronomer has been able to identify a comet that would have been visible at the right date. Halley's Comet would have passed through that part of the sky in 12 or 11 BC, but that's too early. The next thought is that it was a planetary conjunction. And that's two planets aligning closely together. In this case, Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces in 7 BC. And this actually happened. Jupiter was thought of as the royal planet. Saturn represented the Westlands and Pisces represented the last days. So this unusual conjunction would have meant something like, there will appear in Palestine in this year, the ruler of the last days. Now, I think that one's got potential, but there's a third. A nova or supernova, a stellar explosion that would have been extremely bright and lasted several months. Johannes Kepler actually preferred this explanation, and he also knew about the planetary conjunction. It's been also noted that Chinese astronomers recorded a nova which was visible for 70 days in 5 or 4 BC, which would fit really well with the date shortly before Herod's death. But again, no clear-cut winner on this. Land where you want on it, we don't really know about the star. And as to what they believed about Jesus, well, the text only mentions that they came to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king of the Jews. There's no indication that they returned to their lands as God-fearers. It doesn't seem like they were searching for God, but only for a king. The luxurious gifts that they offered, a bit strange to us today, would have been entirely appropriate for a king in first century, first century Palestine. And we have no idea what Joseph and Mary did with the gifts. Perhaps Joseph used them to fund their flight to Egypt. Perhaps Mary saved the myrrh 
and it was used at Jesus' burial. We don't know, and it's not central to the point of the story, but perhaps our curiosity will be satisfied one day. Now, I wonder if they knew beforehand what kind of trouble they were causing by going to visit Herod. The term used to describe Herod and all Jerusalem being troubled means something like frightened or terrified. It wasn't that he was simply put in a bad mood. The news of the birth of the king of Jews completely unsettled him. You see, he was not the king of the Jews by birth. He was appointed king of the Jews by the Romans. At best, Herod was only half Jewish, and he had no ancestral claim to the throne. He would have seen the, new, the news of a newborn king of the Jews as a major threat to his reign. Once the word about the new king's birth spread around Jerusalem, everybody would have known how Herod would react. He was a ruthless and paranoid leader who ordered the execution of three of his sons and one of his wives. It was once observed in antiquity that it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Now, it's just speculation, so take it for what it's worth. But I think that after their first visit with Herod, the Magi had no problem skipping the second meeting and heading back home after visiting with the Holy Family. I doubt the dream really had to do much work for them. They were pretty well on their way to get back home. Now, there's so much more that we can ponder and discuss about this story and about the Magi. We could get into the Old Testament parallels, which is really fascinating. But there isn't time for that. I'm already putting you all to sleep, and we all want to go home soon enough. But God willing, there will be more opportunities to discuss Epiphany, the Magi, Herod, and the newborn king of the Jews. So then what is our takeaway? What does any of this matter today? Is this just purely an academic exercise consisting of church history and a bit of liturgical theology? Well, I hope not. I think Epiphany shows us a few things. It shows us that God cares about all people and acts on their behalf to save them. We live in a world where many believe in some distant, unengaged, and uncaring God. We live in a world where many think that God exists simply to judge people and throw them into some form of eternal torment. But Epiphany flies in the face of those misunderstandings. Epiphany shows us that God does care that God does act, and that God does bring salvation to the whole world. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that all people will be saved, but God's salvation is for all people. God excludes no one. And that leads me to the second thing Epiphany shows us. It shows us that God's vision includes those who would be considered outsiders. In one sense, the Magi had no business traveling to Bethlehem to worship a newborn king. Politically speaking, Jesus was not their king. They did not owe their allegiance or worship to him. Yet we know Jesus is king over all of creation and over all people, regardless of ethnicity, race, or class. And this is the challenge of Epiphany. It shows us that God came for all people and wants all people to come to him. The question is, do we want that as well? So on this night, give thanks to God. 
Give thanks that his son is king over all creation. Give thanks that he came for the greatest, the least, and everyone in between. Give thanks that he came for the powerful and the oppressed. Give thanks that he came for the rich and for the poor. Give thanks that he came for those in the center and for those on the margins. Give thanks that he came for the righteous and the unrighteous. Give thanks that he came for me and that he came for you. Like the Magi, let us find our way to our King, that we might humbly offer our best gifts and worship him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.